Welcome to the Pitbull Patty Show. This season, we're inviting you to take the Lit Grit Challenge by reading great literature just one hour a day, 52 books in 52 weeks, to give you the grit you need to succeed. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pitbull Patty Show. I'm Patty Stuckler, along with my son Connor. And we got such a great book. Oh my gosh. I You say that every week. I okay, well, <laughs> do I say it every I don't know. I just said they're like children to me. They each like we're doing Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell this week. Some of you hopefully have read it. Uh, I read it actually like fifteen years ago for the first time, whenever it came out. It's been a long time. And then but I reread it in, in anticipation of doing this episode and wow. I just love the psychology of this book. It's just so cool. What do you think? I think it's a great book. Well, what's interesting is because, you know, you've recommended I read a couple of Malcolm Gladwell books, like The Outliers, Tipping Point. Blank. Blank, yeah. yeah. And I never read them, and I started to read one, and I didn't get into it. But then I, um, he was actually a guest on Joe Rogan's podcast. So I listened to that, which was really interesting. He was actually talking about his new book, Talking with Strangers, or mm-hmm. Talking to Strangers. Yeah. Um, which I don't know if we're going to read that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I haven't read it yet, yeah. but I'd like to. Yeah, but um, it was really interesting, and I, I just thought, wow, he, he really takes these little things and, and like dives in on kind of the minutia, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then it led me to look up his podcast, because he's got a podcast as well, and I think I went to the wrong one, because I actually listened to one of his like commencement speeches. Oh, really? Um, he's, I guess he's got two, where one, he's got past speeches he's done and then he's actually got like his podcast mm-hmm. and he talked about and it was really interesting because it was something that's in the book the, the power of context he was talking to these real estate developers um which is actually why i listened to it because it was about real estate mm-hmm. and it was just talking about the the importance of your surrounding and how it affects people's behavior which i thought was really interesting mm-hmm. and then then having read this book he, he covers that so yeah was, lots of studies yeah it was well, very interesting. I, I think the uh because we'll talk about the power of context but the i thought it was super cool because in the beginning he talks about paul revere mm-hmm. and and paul revere for people who don't remember the quite the story but the british was, are coming yeah well yeah the midnight <laughs> ride okay but still some people may not realize but the 1775 you know, Paul Revere, silversmith, a, a, a little boy comes to him that works in a stable in Boston and had heard these British army men talking about, we're going to march, we're going to, there's, there's going to be hell to pay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so Paul Revere then goes, you know, meets up with other, you know, revolutionary guys and come up with a plan. They decide to go out on a, a ride. So he rides uh, northwest towards Lexington, sets out at like 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, with the message of the British are coming, right? Yeah. So he goes to town to town. He goes knocking on the doors. The, he gets the church bells ringing and the drums playing. And the towns are all alerted right. because the British were going to Lexington to actually uh, come after John Han- Hancock and Sam Adams. And get their, the, the storage of the guns. Yeah, collection. in Concord. Then they would yeah. go from Lexington to Concord and seize all the, the guns and the ammo weapons, they had. Yeah, yeah the, the militia had there. So so that was the plan. So he goes out and does all that and is wildly successful. You mm-hmm. know, goes over 40 miles, all those towns. And, and so the next morning... You know, they're ready. They're ready right. for the British, and yeah. they kick their butts, and, right. you know, so it was awesome. Yeah. But what was so interesting, and that people don't always know, and probably most people don't, that there was actually another guy besides Paul Revere that set out yeah. on that same yeah. ride, except he was going just uh, west, 
and that was William Dawes, yeah, was another yeah. revolutionary uh, fellow, and and he set out with the same exact message: the British right. are coming, and didn't he didn't you know uh, rouse the troops, so to speak? He did. Yeah, I think it said that only like one town even responded, and they were like late, like too late to even be of any help. Yeah, so they were not prepared for the the British army and. Uh, he just was not successful. Right. He, he didn't. So, like, it begs the question: Why right. are some messages or uh, you know some ideas uh, spread like mm -hmm. a virus, like his did, like Paul Revere's did, and some don't? And really, the the answer was that it was the messenger. It wasn't. It was the same message. Right. But it was the messenger. Mm -hmm. So, um, what do you think about like? Well, yeah, and just to take a little bit of a step back, the the part of this book is it's kind of about social epidemics, like why things spread and how they they reach that tipping point, and then they go from just a few people to you know everybody. So that that's a little bit of the context of the Paul Revere thing, and I just thought it was interesting because he he talks in the book they talk about the three different kinds of people, and it's there's like what there's three principles. It's the well, as far as social epidemics, he's talking about there's three principles. You got the the, the, the law of the few, the law of the few, the stickiness, which the is, stickiness has to do with factor. the message, yep. um, and then the power of context. Power but context, in yeah. the first part, when he's talking about the law of the few, right, is then when he's talking about like the three different kinds of people that 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 make up the law of the few, and um, you know, he talks about the six degrees of separation too. Which well, was, not to get ahead, but he talks about the the types of people like Paul Revere was, right. you have connectors, mavens, and salesmen. Right. And these yeah. are these are highly unusual people. They are they are um, not like the normal average person. Right. They are, you know, they have an ability to connect people, to be very socially engaging and sure. belong to many different groups. So they have a um, a really powerful way of being able to spread word of mouth epidemics. Right. And yeah, and so the thing that the book looks at with Paul Revere is that he was actually two of these three kinds of people. He was he was a connector. So that's part of the reason why he was so wildly successful. He he was part of all these different social groups. So as he's riding through all the towns, he knows who to talk to to get the message out and um, you know, where they are, where they live, who's who's the local militia leader of this town. Mm -hmm. Um so that was one factor. And then the other was that he's a maven and you might be wondering what the heck's a maven? Uh, which is what <laughs> not I a raven. Thinking. Right. Not <laughs> uh, and a maven is basically a collector of information. And so, you know, because he was a, a connector and a maven, that, that stable boy even knew to go to Paul Revere because mm -hmm. he was the kind of person that, you know, was a collector of that kind of information. Well, I always think of it, too, as really mavens are people that really want to help people. So they're, right. yeah. they're, they're not just yeah. people who know a lot of people. But they're they're you know they like to teach. They're they're really good teachers. But they also have that other element of being very socially engaging and involved, like a connector. Right. So they're to me they're very similar. Well, what's funny about that too is he gives another example of, of a maven, and it's this guy. I think he was in Texas, and he's like, oh, you got to go to this person to get your car fixed, and you got to go to this grocery store to get this, and stay at this hotel. And right. You, exactly. This is what you need to order at the restaurant at the right. hotel. So they're a collector of information, but really they want to help people. That's that's how they get their. Um, you know, gratification from it. Yeah. But you know what's funny is, you know, I thought of I thought of my aunt Terry and her cutting coupons. <laughs> She's like, oh, you got to go to Safeway on Thursday to get this <laughs> and that, and you know, that's. Uh, She's, she's kind of a maven and, when it comes and, to and, uh, grocery store coupons, I, I would, guess. I would say Tommy Seed is a bit like that, too. 
kind of always, yeah, you know, yeah. hey, go here. Well, that's what I, yeah, I said that to you the other specials day. specials are this, and you got to try that, and you got to talk to this guy. He's, he's and, a little you know. little bit of a Paul Revere himself. Yeah. He's a connector. He knows lots, well, lots of people. I thought it was interesting, like, in the book, in reading about Paul Revere and then reading about connectors and mavens and salesmen, it made me think about the book of habits that we've already covered. Yeah. That Rosa Parks that I like so much that when they were talking about Rosa Parks, right. I, I realized in reading this, wow, she was a true connector, connector and, yeah. and maven. And that is why the tipping point, because as we talked about in right. that, there was other people who sat where they weren't supposed to sit in that time, you know, right. legally and whatever, yep. and then got arrested even as much as 10 years earlier than Rosa Parks, also in the same area. So right. why did Rosa Parks, why was it, why did it tip? Why did that right. epidemic spread? Yeah. It was because... Rosa Parks belonged to all these different groups, mm -hmm. not just one. And she most people... In the church and the knitting groups and the school groups, you know, helped out with the kids. and. Well, and also she was involved with white families where she made dresses, like prom oh, dresses, right. I yep. guess. I won't, they weren't yeah. called proms, but whatever, debutante type dresses mm -hmm. for white families. And she was very well respected, very yeah. well liked and knew all these people. Yeah. And so yeah, she'd have been a perfect case study for this book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have to let Malcolm Gladwell yeah. know when he revises <laughs> the, the next revision, he can add Rosa Parks in there. That's so funny. So that, no, that was super interesting. So um, I want to look at my notes because this book is just chock full of like so many different psychological mm -hmm. studies. Well, what I thought is was interesting too is so the third person is is the salesman, and that's and that's somebody who's you know gonna basically sell your your message and get it to you know infect as many people as possible, and then that is a big tipping point too. But one of the things I thought was really interesting was was one of the examples he gave of of the salesman type, and he talked about this financial um, advisor, and that. It's, it's not just, you know, the script, you know, mm -hmm. he said you could, after meeting with the salesman, he was, he just felt like totally engaged with him and like, man, he could have, you know, got him to sign whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it wasn't just his words, but it was actually, you know, his body language and, it, and how it kind of lured pe lulled people into uh, kind of like a rhythm and a dance with the person. And that's, that's how he was so persuasive, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting and something I was like, well, I need to kind of incorporate that with. You know, selling houses. You need to learn to dance. Yeah, yeah. Watch the dance. <laughs> okay, more than just the shoulders. Okay. More than just shoulder rolls. No, Build so. The shoulders. Yeah, I thought, thought that was super interesting. And he talks about, like, um, he talks about the six degrees of separation, which you kind of mentioned. I yeah, think, yeah. About the big people, like the study where the, um, they had 160 people in Omaha where they, like, sent them a package. And then they had to write their name on it and get that package to a stockbroker, and this was in the 60s, this is before internet and all that. Before obviously. Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah, before every before everything. And and they had to get to this stockbroker in Massachusetts. Right. And so what they found was that it would take five or six on average of five or six steps, hands. You go, 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 how how does words spread or information spread through a society? And this is again back before the internet. So and social media and all that jazz. But um, it would take five or six people, and that's right. where that six degrees of separation came in. Yep, yep. And then what's interesting, too, with that was that he found, like, half of these 160 packages that got delivered came through the hands of, like, three or four people. So what was interesting was that the six degrees of separation, but it's not all created equal. There's mm -hmm. there's people that are much more interconnected than, than others, whereas, like, the normal person might only have a few connections, but then one of their connections is one of these kind of super connectors that then 
you know, branches to lots of different people. Well, and if you think about it, most people have like a certain group, like say they're a big golfer. So they know a lot of right. people who golf and then that's, you know, or they live, somebody who lives in a big apartment building, they know a lot of people who live in that apartment building. And so they have friends either by proximity mm -hmm. or by their activities. Right. And that's true for most people. So they're limited. But then you have these set few who have so many different groups and are so socially adept that they can, you know, navigate through a lot of different right. societies. Be the basically. bridge between a bunch of different social circles. Yeah. So he also talks about stickiness, this, you know, the message itself. Right. Yeah. The, you know, what makes something more interesting. Now, the British are coming. That doesn't sound like, I guess, that sticky, but maybe back then. Well, probably, I think that would be sticky because it's extremely relevant. To, I mean, they're, it's, you know, their colonies being kind of oppressed, whatever, by the British monarch and... So that, I mean, the British are coming would be pretty sticky. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, so I didn't think the stickiness factor was 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 as interesting as the, the law of the few or the um, power, power context. context. I yeah. really thought the power context was, was really interesting. Yeah. And like how you talk about the power of habit with respect to being a maven and a connector with Rosa Parks, I thought it made me, the power of context made me think about um, that company Alcoa and how they, they started with, you know, making safety a priority and then the huge ripple effects it had. So when they talked about the power context, and it's there's two parts of the power context, but one of the things that it was so interesting was about the New York City subways and how there was a crime epidemic and, you know, it wasn't safe and people were getting mugged and, you know, robbed and beaten and sometimes even killed. And, um, but how they started, how they basically started to address that was not you know, hey, we're going to go after the high-profile muggings and everything. What they started was with the, with the graffiti, mm -hmm. and it tied back into that that broken glass principle, which is a you know a thing in psychology where you know your environment. If you if there's a bunch of broken glass and graffiti, you're you're more prone to actually commit crimes and do those things because of the environment. And that's that's a big that's the first part of the power of context, which I thought was super interesting. Mm -hmm. That by focusing on graffiti and then later fairs. Fair jumper, jumpers, fair jumpers, people who weren't paying their fare and just jumping over the turnstiles, they actually were able to totally transform the New York City subway and make it, you know, what it is today, which is which is very safe. And I mean, having lived in New York with, you know, Rose, my fiance, and I, I mean, I never felt unsafe on the subway. And I know when I moved up there, you were like, "You're gonna get mugged." And, uh, <laughs> I don't remember saying that. <laughs> you were worried about me moving to New York City. I don't. You didn't say you were gonna get mugged, but you were definitely worried about it because it, you know, it was obviously known as very unsafe during the '80s. And um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I, I thought it was great. I never felt unsafe. And well, the thing that was interesting to me was. Um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about. Uh, again, I'm a big strapping young. <laughs> he talks about the the 1980s um, New York City. It was it was really really crime ridden. It was just a terrible place. Nobody was safe there. And he talks about 1984, the Bernard uh, Gatz uh, Gatz, however you say his name. Yeah. Um, were if and and I remember that because I graduated high school in '83. So in '84, I, I mean I was like 19 years old or whatever. Yeah, I was negative eight. <laughs> and I can remember, I can remember that story. And what happened was Bernard Gates or Getz, he was on the subway and he had a gun, which I mean, which kind of crazy. And he's just like this really nerdy looking accountant type guy. Mm -hmm. And these four young guys ended up like messing with him, you know, like going to rob him, whatever. And, and there was other people on the train car, a couple of ladies. And he was, you know, they were just taunting people and really whatever. Yeah. 
and he shot him. He shot these four kids, went to trial, and then was basically hailed as a hero yeah. and was seen as a vigilante, which, or vigilante. He, what's so fascinating to me is I read that and it was like refreshing my memory and I'm thinking about today, you know, 2020, and you're thinking, that would never happen today. Oh, it would yeah. just, it would yeah. never so, be viewed. It certainly wouldn't be viewed as a hero. It would not be viewed as a hero at all. And it just tells you how bad that subway system was and mm -hmm. that no unpicked people were always jumping the turnstiles and not paying. And it was, Well, the, what's interesting, you know, too, is because he does talk about that story. And, you know, not, not that that'd be justified, you know, shooting people's, you know, very rarely justified. Um, but they did have, like, screwdrivers in their pockets. You know, they were... Basically, they were trying to rob him when, when, mm -hmm. when he did shoot him. So, I mean, it was in self-defense, you know, to a certain extent. But he also came on the subway with a gun. So, he, I kind of feel like he was looking for trouble a little bit. So, it's just it's an interesting story. And, you know, especially in the, you know, in the lens of viewing that story, that same story today. today it would be viewed it's crazy much when you think about it. So, wow. it's, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. It, it's super fascinating. I, just, I thought it was just really, really interesting, especially because... I remember that yeah. that time and 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 it's like the thing about it is when they decided to focus on a small thing instead of here you got when you think about the magnitude of the problem this horrific crime all over no one wants to ride the subway because yeah, so there was like what two thousand murders a year yeah it was it, the, the, the crime rate was just astronomical and they were you know murders rapes I mean they weren't just little crimes they were big crimes so to focus on something so small as graffiti, yeah. which of course all the train cars were just filled with graffiti. Right. So mm -hmm. what they did was they the police decided, okay, they were going to scrub every car. And if a car, and they had cars that would go to Harlem to the end of the line. And then if it was a graffiti car, what they would do was they would paint it all over, send it back out. And they wouldn't send any car back out unless it was totally repainted. Clean, yep. So then the car would go back to the end of the line the, the you know the kids would come out there they it would take three days for them to do the type of graffiti that they did which right. is, that was interesting too yeah they would literally like come at night the, three nights in a row three nights like, in a row they would do they paint it like white i guess to get the you know the base like almost like a real artist it's quite fascinating and then they would do all the outlines the second night then on the third night they would do all the color right so they would do this beautiful masterpiece in their minds obviously yeah. some of it is quite interesting and then they'd send that car back out there, and boy, that car, they wouldn't send it out. But the, right. they'd they have it painted over. They'd have it painted over and send back out. And so these kids would spend three days of their life or nights of their life doing all this work only to have it just painted right back over. So they stopped doing it. Right. Of course, you're going to stop doing it. And the same kind of thing with the, the, the beating the fares, they would start arresting people left and right, and they would make it really expedited. They got to mm -hmm. the point where they could do it so quickly, and... Then they would find that like like one in five or something of all the fair would painters have a would a have gun. a weapon. They would have a they would have a. I think a one out of every twenty warrant. had a gun, and then one out of every five had a warrant or something. Like I mean, that. it was crazy. So yeah. they were like actually solving other crimes right. very quickly and catching criminals. And again, I think that's really interesting in today's context because I I tend to feel like man giving people a you know a record for a, a two dollar and fifty cent fare is kind of ridiculous. Um, so I, I kind of tend to go the opposite way and say, man, you're now making it harder for that person to get a job because now they've got a criminal record because of a $2.50 fare, you know? So I, but it's, it's so fascinating to see that by focusing on that, it actually had the ripple effect of, of, of preventing all these, these larger crimes. So it's really interesting because it puts me in kind of a, 
you know, a tough position because on, on one hand, I'm a bleeding heart. Yeah, liberal. but that, that would be a very minor misdemeanor. It would be like a traffic stop or getting I, a I know, but then, but, yeah, but I like, but that's that's why New York has gone to like uh, the no bail system, which I don't I think agree that's with. A big I don't mistake, agree with. Big mistake, I agree with. But yeah. it is, it is, you know, it is, it is does disproportionately affect people, lower income people that don't that then sit in jail or go to Rikers for something that's that's really small that anybody else would be able to pay a three hundred dollar cash bail and get out. Um, so I do understand. I don't know. It's just a it's a delicate dance. Um, but I just thought it was interesting. Well, it just back shows then and then like if you try to do that now, um, because I mean when I lived in New York, there were people jumping fares all the time, and they they really didn't police it. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's been proven time and time again that the small things like like to like the right. Alcohol, no, I, no, it's definitely how, it's very very. I, I just think it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I you take that's one why you small gotta, thing. You guys got to read these books. You you do because and in fact, if you read these books, because I think you were saying. <clears throat> The other day, we kind of talked about it a little bit already about, um, in fact, sometimes we have some really interesting conversations. That don't make we, it on the podcast. Yeah, because by the time we've already talked about it a little bit, sometimes we need to make sure not to talk before we sit down and do the podcast. Because, you know, you were you were saying something about how um, that this book isn't a, really a self-help book. Right. Remember we were talking yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, and yeah, you were yeah. like... I, well, yeah, I just, I just think it's, I like, when I started reading it, I was like, well, I kind of almost lost interest in it, even though it's a super fascinating book, because I'm, I'm kind of on this, like, personal development path, and so I started reading it, and I was like, oh, you know, it's kind of not exactly the genre or whatever, yeah, but then as I kept reading, you know, it, it really, it's just a fascinating book, and it's, it's really more about, like, sociology and psychology and, Real, I mean, for me and like personal development with my career and everything, the salesman bit really spoke to me. But I just thought it was a great. I mean, it's super interesting. I thought the law. I thought the power of context was so fascinating. And to tie it back to what I was talking about when I listened to his lecture at a commencement speech, because he was at he was speaking at a real estate development um, like graduation class in in Miami, and he was talking about you know, the architecture and the buildings that you build really do affect the community and affect the people and how they act. And he actually talked about the Golden State, Golden Gate Bridge and how there's all these, it's like the number one bridge for like suicides. And, um, you know, obviously that was an unintended consequence, but, you know, you the, the buildings you build and the environment that you surround yourself really do have an effect on, on your behavior, which I thought was super interesting. Um, and then further, the second part of the power of context was, you know, not just your physical surroundings, but the people you surround yourself with. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was interesting because you talked about, I know we've talked about this before, but like when I'm around my, my parents, my mom and my dad, they've got these big personalities. So I'm usually a little, you know, a little quieter, more reserved around, around my family. But then when I'm in some of my other friend groups, you know, I am that, you know, gregarious person and loud and more outgoing. And so it's, it's, it's just, it's so very you're like you become your parents. <laughs> I didn't <Right>? say that. <laughs> Did not say that. <laughs> no, no, I think it's very true. I, what fascinated me out of all of it to me, I thought about the small, how important a really small detail can be. And if you change the right small thing, how, what an impact it can have on your life. So like quitting smoking, like, uh, what's her name in power habit? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I was thinking like, and that's why it is a self-help book. If you look right. at it, if you look at it in that context, if you say, well, how can I apply this to my life? So when I was reading, rereading this, I like personal development, not self-help. Okay, well, what, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> whatever. So I, I thought about it and thought, okay, well, like, 
how can I apply just a small thing? So I thought about, okay, you know, my relationship, you know, with your dad. I was thinking, well, how about if I, like every morning I give him a kiss and like start my day, just a nice quick kiss and a hug and start my day. And I started implementing that. And it's so interesting how one small thing, that's just a small thing, just, you know, a kiss, you know, first thing in the morning. And it's like, because working with your dad, working together. I'm believing that there's that. <laughs> I know you're probably a little creeped out too, but. No, I'm no. just very skeptical. <laughs> no, I mean, you know how it is. We work together, working with your dad and working with family all the time. It has its own certain challenges. And when it comes to your relationship with your spouse, then it can be like you see your spouse a little bit too much like. A coworker. Your coworker, you know, like that drives you crazy. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I decided, okay, I'm going to implement that. And and I noticed a shift. I noticed that it's like it softens, you know, his behavior. And I, I just, I mean, I'm just you starting to do it. that to start your morning? <laughs> Doesn't put you in a bad mood? Hey. So, <laughs> so I mean, if that, so isn't that interesting? You know, so you can play around with that idea. of It's just the idea of, yeah. well, what small change can I make in my business? What small change can I make in my relationship or in my life or my habits or whatever? And see the domino effect yeah. that it can have, the, yeah. the big effect. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's great. And I think that's the great thing about these books is you see parallels between these things. And it, they reinforce each other, in a, even though they're took, taking a totally different look at it. Like, I wouldn't would say there's that much between, right, yeah, yeah, I would say there's very little overlap, but then when you, you once you start to read it, you, you start to see these trends and these, these parallels, and it kind of reinforces that, hey, this isn't a bunch of bullshit, this is actually, this is legit, and you can look at it a bunch of different ways, and that's what I think is great about all these books, too, because the power of habit might not click for some people, mm -hmm. but the tipping point, you could read it and then take away that, hey, maybe I need to not nag so much. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever works. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I think uh, another thing, just kind of in trying to wrap it up, the FAE, which was the fundamental attribution error. I don't know how you thought about it, but I, what he talks about in that, and that was also in the power of context uh, section of the book. Yeah. But he talks about how, like, when you look at another person and you think, wow. Well, Joshua is a really honest person. That's how I see him. It's almost like they're one-dimensional then in your mind. Like you have a... Like they're or, static. Or the reverse. Oh, that, that person really is, you know, whatever. Some negative attribute. Right. Right? And, like that and, person's a liar, but that doesn't mean they're always lying. That means, you know, or or that person's really honest. But that in certain contexts, that person may not be always honest. And it's not so black and white and that there's a lot of gray. Yeah, and if you change their environment, that right. same honest Abe all of a sudden becomes... Um, you know, a cheater like a lot of people. And, and so people will, you put them in a different context. And in fact, one of the stories I really liked was he talked about the, um, I think it was Princeton University did a study about the Good Samaritan kind of effect. Oh, yeah, that was, that was interesting. That was super interesting. There were and, a bunch of seminarians that there were the test uh, yeah, 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 I know. It was so crazy. So they took the, they have a theological seminary. I, who knew at Princeton, at least back then. I don't know now. I don't know when this Good was. In fact, you know what? When I was at Princeton, I, I didn't. <laughs> so only either. But yeah, it's so it was a seminary just to kind of lay it out. It was a seminary with these seminarians. They were part of a test that they didn't realize part of an experiment. Right. And they were told, okay, you're going to go over to this building and you're going to, that's, you know, however, it was close enough to walk. You're going to go there and you're going to give this speech about the of all things, the Good Samaritan. And if you remember the Good Samaritan, the it was Bible, a, yeah. 
Yeah, the same. I think it was in the Gospel of Luke, and and this traveler is traveling, and he gets robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, and then a priest and a Levite come come by. So two people you would think that would, would help, actually right. help, and they did not help. They literally passed by this, you know, and it took this Samaritan, which Samaritans were part of a group of a minority group that was kind of despised mm -hmm. and not well respected. And it was actually a Samaritan that, that then bandaged the person and took care of them and, and helped. So this is what these seminarians that are trained to be priests. I think it's a great example. It, is. it illustrates We're, the power, the power, power of context. context probably yeah. better than any story yeah. in there, I thought. So they go and they got to go to give this speech. Now, they would tell half the group, okay, you're going to, um, you know, you're, uh, you're going to have plenty of time and, you know, you, you can get there early, whatever. So right. they, they tell them you got plenty of time. They go walking, and 63% of those, which I was a little surprised, wasn't higher than that, to be honest with you. But 60, if you're going to go give a speech on the on Good the, Samaritan, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you know you have time, and you say only 63%, but it still was a high number, so right. more than, more half. than half. Yeah, so about two-thirds stop and help this a person who was already intentionally set there right. to be the, you know, the victim that needed help. Then they told the other half of the, the seminarians, Hey, you're running late. You're already late. They've they, it started early, and they're expecting you. And you know, you got to get you, over there. You got to get over there. Only ten percent of this yeah. that were on their way to give a speech about the Good Samaritan actually helped this person that was clearly in need and, right. and was on the way to where they were giving the speech. So on the surface, you think the you know overwhelming majority of these people would help, but that small change in their context. Hey, you got plenty of time, or you're running late. Had a huge, drastic effect. Totally, on... that one small thing yeah. isn't that interesting. Yeah, one little tiny variable yeah. that then changed. It was the tipping point. Yeah. So time actually was the tipping point that changed behavior. So right. I, it's a fascinating look on our own lives, and if you kind of take some of this information and you go, "Wow, you know how these kinds of variables change your own behavior," you can kind of watch out for it a, yeah. a little bit more when you're aware of it. Absolutely. I don't know. Super fascinating. So we'll we'll wrap this up. And uh, oh, we gotta we gotta talk what's, about what's the next the book? next book. Just happens to be handy. The anagram made easy. This is a really super easy read. Obviously, just like it says, made easy. I mean, it literally even has pictures. So you'll love this book, Connor. <laughs> but the anagram made easy, and it's by Renee uh, Barron and Elizabeth uh, Waggles. Waggles. What? I said Elizabeth Warren. Oh my gosh, Elizabeth Wagles. Anyway, it says Why discover. Not Native American? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, <laughs> discover the nine types of people. So you will figure out which one you are of the nine. It's my favorite of the personality types of right. assessments that you can do, and there's plenty out there like DISC and lots of others. But to me, this is a great one and an easy read, and will be so much fun to talk about. Yeah, and you can read this book and just start analyzing all the people around you and your family yeah. members. And oh, you're such a nine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So anyway, so we are, this has been fun. Enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, have a great week. One hour a day. That's all you need to do. One hour a day. You should be able to knock it out. And this one probably less than that, right? Yeah. That's so, all. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So we'll see you next time.